Reading out of Judges. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash and Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Israel may boast against me, saying, My own strength has delivered me. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baalbereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. This is the word of God. Yeah, give him a hand. Good job. He had some really tough names to, to pronounce in that scripture reading. Uh, he did better than I would have done, so thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, my hat's off to all you dads with kids who made it to church without your wives. Congratulations. Very, very good. Very good. I know for some others it was a little too rough but we're not judging them. It's just not a difficult, it is a difficult job, not easy at all. And so it probably increasing, increase, I can't even talk yet. I haven't had enough Red Bull. It increases our appreciation for what our wives do every single day. Um, not only that, but also single moms who do that every single day. Um, and so I think it gives us a, a better understanding. I was talking to one of the guys before the service, and I said, uh, how you doing? He's all hanging in there. And he said, my strategy is just to hunker down and grind it out. I'm like, all right. Well, congratulations, you made it here. And so thank you for being here this morning. It's good to be together as brothers and sisters in the Lord to worship. And uh, my hope and prayer is that as we, leave, as we listen and as we leave here today, uh, because we gathered as brothers and sisters to worship, that we will become more like Christ because we love him more and the gospel has stirred up our loyalty uh, to him. I also wanted to tell you uh, real quick, I wanted to give you just a personal update. Um, many of you know that my wife has had some uh, pretty harsh uh, uh, health uh, problems and, and um, she hasn't been able to go to anything like a retreat or anything like that or be away from me in, in years now. And this last weekend was the very first time that she got to go away and be on the retreat. And so that's progress and answers to prayer. Thank you for, for praying uh, for her. I really, really appreciate that. And today happens to be our 24th wedding anniversary. So... Uh, I'm just fishing for all of the applause this morning, so how about another round of applause just because? <laughs> all right, all right, that's enough of that. All right. 
So um, we, a couple weeks ago, wrapped up a series where we looked at various passages through 2 Corinthians. And this, the name of this series was called Forged Through Suffering. How God uses suffering and redeems us and grows us and, and makes us, he continues the work of, that he had begun uh, to complete us and to make us whole. Uh, what the evil one meant for evil, God means for good. Our redeemer turns that suffering inside out uh, and, and he uses it for his glory and to bring blessing to us. Uh, the next series, we're going to look at the book of Acts and we're going to look at the early church and kind of look at our roots and uh, we're going to see what we can learn from the early church uh, through the good things and the bad things of, of the early church. And, and in between the two series, we have a, a couple of standalone messages. This is one of them. And the title of the message is, What's Your Problem? Or maybe it's, What's Your Problem? What we're really getting at is, What's Your Real Problem? You, you think of the problems going on in your life right now that you are enduring, that you are weathering, that, that's crushing you. What's the real problem? I want to ask you this morning, um, we'll start with this. What habit do you have that is unloving towards others and to God? Does anything come to mind? If so, I want to tell you that it's not just unloving, it's destructive. Far more destructive than we might think. Let me ask you, uh, take it another, at another angle. What emotion or attitude do you find yourself having from time to time or constantly that is unloving to others? And to God. Any attitude or emotion that comes to mind? I want you to know that it's not just unloving. It's destructive. Far more destructive than you think. And what I want you to do is, whatever it is that has come to your mind right now, the Holy Spirit uses that to, for us to become self-aware so that we can process it. So hold that in your mind. Don't try to boot it out because it's uncomfortable to think about it. Hold on to it through this message so that we can deal with it. And if you can't think of any issues that you have, any negative emotions or, or attitudes or unloving habits, if you can't think of anything, ask Kathy Chang and she'll tell you. All right? Right? Yeah, that's what she does. We all have problems that come to our mind. What is it for you? And here's the deal. I, I'm convinced that, that most of us, at least part of us, wants to change, but most of us are stuck. And what I want us to see this morning is that your problem, whatever it is that, that's on your mind, is not your real problem. Your problem is, I think it was Blaze who said it in one of our gospel-driven leadership meetings, or, or I, I'm not sure, maybe um, it, was, it was Charles. You guys can duke it out afterwards for credit. 
The problem that you're going through that's distressing you is just like the weed above the ground that, that you see. We need to get to the root of it, right? You know, if you weed your garden, if you just snap the top off, that's, that does no good at all. So we got to keep this in mind as we go through this Old Testament story about Gideon and the Israelites. And so let me unpack this story. I'll give you an overview of it so we don't have to read several chapters of the book of Judges. The story begins this way. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Over and over and over again, we see through the book of Judges, over and over and over again, they did evil. it says they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this time, God gives them into the hands of the Midianites, the powerful Midianites. And every harvest time, this, this, this Midianite murderous army invaded Israel, and there were, there were so many Midianite warriors, they, they couldn't even be counted. And they, they would swarm in like, like locusts, and they would devour the crops and the livestock, and even anything that they didn't eat, they would just trample it so that nothing was left for Israel. The Israelites were so fearful of the Midianites that they hid in caves. They were so oppressed that, that they cried out to the Lord for help. The Lord listened. And the Lord sends a prophet. Now I can imagine when the, when, the, when the prophet showed up, the Israelites thought, Lord, I don't think you will really appreciate the situation here. We are being relentlessly oppressed by the murderous Midianites. We need warrior king, not a preacher. Send us, you know, like King Leonidas of Sparta or William Wallace, somebody like that. Better yet, Thor would be a good idea. Send us somebody like Thor. Not preacher, man. He can stay at home. Why in the world did the Lord send a prophet? The Lord sent a prophet because the Israelites thought their problem was the Midianites. And so God sent a prophet to tell them, your problem is not your problem. Your problem is the problem beneath the problem. And so the prophet said, here's what the Lord your God says. I brought you out of slavery. I gave you the promised land and told you I am your God. Don't worship other gods. But you didn't listen. Your problem is not the Midianites. They are the consequence. Your problem is idolatry. And after the warning from the prophet, they still didn't change their ways. And so what's the Lord do? In compassion, he sends them a warrior. Kind of. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and he told Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, but sir, if the Lord really is with us, then why are the Midianites oppressing us? The Lord has abandoned us. Gideon doesn't get it either. Gideon says the Midianites are the problem and it's God's fault. We're in this mess because God abandoned us. And the angel of the Lord says, listen, I am sending you to save Israel out of the hands of the Midianites. 
Now check this out. He just, the angel of the Lord just called Gideon a mighty warrior. That right there is a term you would give somebody like William Wallace. But listen to Gideon. He says, Lord, there's no way I can save Israel. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. That does not sound like brave heart to me. And the Lord said, no, you listen to me. I will be with you and you will defeat them. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, tear down your father's altar to Baal. His dad and he were worshiping false gods. And so the Lord said, tear it down. And then I want you to build an altar to the Lord your God. And that bull that your father was going to sacrifice on the altar to Baal, I want you to sacrifice it on my altar as a burnt offering to me. And Gideon did what the Lord told him to do. The next day when the men of the town saw that the Baal's, their, their, their Baal's altar was demolished and that the bull that they were saving to sacrifice to Baal was sacrificed on a new altar, they wanted to know who did it. And when they found out it was Gideon, they go to his father and said, you need to bring your boy to us because he's got to die for what he did. And Gideon's father says, are you, are you trying to save Baal? I mean, if Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And so Gideon's dad bails him out. And now the Midianites are on the move again, making their way to Israel, and they set up camp, getting ready to invade again. And it says that the Spirit of the Lord descended upon Gideon, and Gideon blasted his trumpet, and he summoned uh, Israel to battle, and 32,000 men show up for the call. Any of you been to um, the sports arena or viejas, whatever it's called now? When it's packed out, it's about 10,000 people. That times three. That's a lot of people, right? 32,000 people show up for the call. But compared to the Midianites' vast army, it's small. But God said it wasn't small enough. So the Lord said to Gideon, you have way too many men. If I deliver you from the Midianites with your 32,000 men, Israel's going to say, look what we did. Can't have that. So here's what I want you to do. Send home anybody who's scared. And so Gideon addresses his 32,000 men. He says, no one here is scared, right? But if you are, you can go home. And you know how many were scared and went home? 22,000 men. Of the 32,000, 22,000 went home. And how many do you have left? You're all math whizzes. 10,000. 10,000 men. One sports arena instead of three against a vast army. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take them down to the water and I want you to separate those who scoop up water and, and drink with their hand from those who, who kneel down and put their face to the stream and drink it. And 300 men scoop the water and 9,700 kneel down to drink. 
So now you have a group of 300 and a group of 9,700. Guess which group Gideon gets? He gets the 300. And the Lord says to Gideon, with the 300, I will save you from the murderous Midianites. Now the Midianites camped in the, the valley of Jezreel. And during the night, the Lord goes to Gideon and says, if you are afraid to attack uh, um, the Midianites to protect Israel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sneak into their camp with your servant and listen to what they're saying. And so Gideon and his servant, they, they creep into the camp under the cover of night, and, and, a, and there was a camp. They found themselves in the middle of this camp of hundreds of thousands of warriors. And he's thinking, you know, this is impossible. There is no way we're going to pull this off. But just when Gideon reached one of the outposts, he heard one Midianite tell his buddy, his, other, his, his friend Midianite, his dream. And he's eavesdropping on this conversation. And the first Midianite says, you know what? I had a dream. A giant loaf of barley bread came rolling down the hill like a, like a boulder into the Midianite camp. And this, this giant giant boulder of barley bread slammed into one of the tents so hard the tent flipped over and it and it collapsed and his friend replied i know what your dream means he says it means that the sword of gideon is going to cut us down it means that that god has given the the midianites to gideon into gideon's hands and when gideon hears this he worships the lord and he returns to the camp and he calls his men and he says y'all need to get up cuz the lord has given the midianites to us and so gideon arms his 300 men with swords and spears and shields right Wrong. He does not give them swords and spears and shield. Not at all. He gives them a horn and a jar with a torch in it, which seems crazy. That's like a commander moving into a giant battle with 300 men and giving them an air horn can, a vase, and a flashlight, and says, let's go get them. It just seems ridiculous. I, can you imagine what these 300 men were thinking? This is like the dumbest thing ever. Well, when the 300 men get to the edge of the camp, they blasted their horn, they smashed the jars, and they held up their torches on fire, and then... They just stood there. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they just stood there. And all the Midianites, the weirdest things started happening. They all started attacking each other. <laughs> there was so much chaos. The Midian army was destroying itself and, and those who were left just started running from the camp and the Israelites chased them down. This vast, unstoppable Midian, Midianite army was stopped. They were defeated. 
And during Gideon's lifetime, they enjoyed 40 years of peace. But Gideon makes a golden ephod, which is golden ephod is like a breastplate that the priests would wear. And what did Israel do? They prostituted themselves by worshiping in it. They prostituted themselves by worshiping it. It became a snare or a trap to Gideon and his family. And no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals again, just like before. They did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies. And that's the story. So I'm just going to draw out two lessons if you want to take notes with the handout. The first lesson is this. That my real problem, your real problem, is idolatry. You might not think that it's idolatry because you don't think that you have little statues or big statues that you bow down to and pray to. But let me explain. Idolatry, I'm going to explain that. I'm going to give you five words, all right? Five words. And the first word is beneath. Idolatry is the problem beneath my problem. Our story began with the word again, over and over and over again, Israel worshiped false gods. That was not their only sin. But it's the one that's mentioned. And the reason that it's mentioned is because whenever they disobeyed God, the sin beneath their sin was idolatry. It is the same for us It is the same for us. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and and we make it into the thing that we have to have to be happy, to feel secure, to, to feel comfortable. So what is it for you? What is it that, that you have to have for you to be okay, for you to be happy? It might be respect, it might be health, it might be good kids, it might be a good job, it might be good romance, it might be approval, it might be comfort or money in the bank. All of those are good things. But when we make those good things into the the thing that we have to have to be happy, we've just made them an idol. Now how can you know what your idols are. It's actually pretty easy. We suffer their consequences. We become obsessed because we have to have it. We become worried if it looks like it's gonna uh, not come to reality or we get angry if somebody blocks it. We feel guilty if we fail it. We get depressed if getting it seems impossible and we're empty if we do get it. That anger, the, the depression, the, 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 uh, the emptiness, those are like the lights on your dashboard that tell you that something's wrong. And it's idolatry. It's a gracious diagnosis. At least we could do something about it now, right? So that's the first word, beneath. Second word is deceptive. My idols are always deceptive. Israel and Gideon thought their problem was the Midianites, and they blamed God for the oppression. And when the prophet pointed out their idolatry, they still didn't get it. Your idols 
are deceiving you. My idols are deceiving me. For example, when I'm stressed about something, if I'm stressed about, you know, my family or the church, good things, and I, and I worry about it, and, and it, it just kind of makes me just kind of sick to think about it, it's easy for me to see the stress as the problem instead of seeing the stress as the consequence of my problem beneath the problem. You follow me? And it's idolatry. Here's the thing, if you think that you don't have any idols, you're deceived. Second word, helpless. Our idols are totally helpless. Gideon's dad was a Baal worshiper. He realized false gods are totally helpless. And so when the, the, the men demanded his son, he said, if Baal really is a god, then he can defend himself. So... My idolatry. I've realized for a long time that, that I have an idol of, for respect or for control. And um, I realized, actually, the reason I want respect and control is so I, I can feel comfort. I, and there's comfort that comes with being in control or a type of comfort that comes with, with uh, having, having respect. But underneath it all, really, it's an idol of comfort. And I share this with you so that maybe it helps you kind of identify what's going on with you in, in your heart, in your life. And when it comes to my idol of comfort, it, 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 it promises to bless me. It says, you know, Matt, if you seize control and you earn respect, you will feel comfort and you will be happy. But if you don't, I will curse you with failure and you will be miserable. Every now and then I remember that idol cannot deliver on its promise to bless me. It can only deliver on the promise to curse me. You know, whenever I do succeed, it can only give me a moment of joy, and then immediately it says, you can do better. And if I fail it, it can't forgive me. It's helpless. Next word, destructive. Since my idols are helpless and worthless and useless, they are destructive. Here's the irony. Since they're helpless and destructive, they are useless. And when Israel served Baal, and Baal was useless, it, it's like sitting in a, and trusting in a broken chair. You trust it, you put your trust in it, it breaks, it lets you down, and hurts you. When we look to something other than God to make us happy, we suffer the destruction of these idols. It's strained relationships, or unhealthy habits, or, or negative emotions that rob us for, for joy. And our, our idols lead us to hurt and use and ignore others, or we become codependent for our happiness. And the last word in this section is grievous. Worst of all, my idols are grievous to the Lord. It's, it's not a simple transaction like you mess up and pay a fine 
or you get pulled over uh, by, by the police officer because you rolled through, you did a California stop through a stop sign, and then he pulls you over. Uh, it's, you know, you got busted, here's the ticket, you gotta pay, you know, you didn't hurt the cop's feelings or anything like that, this is just doing his job, go on your way. It's not a simple transaction like that with God. It's relational. All right? Hypothetically speaking, and as painful as it might be to imagine, if your spouse cheats on you, but you were faithful, what do you say? You say, I, I loved you. I prioritized you. I was faithful to you. I helped you get where you are. I sacrificed for you. I always have been there for you. How could you do this to us? And that's what's going on when we make a good thing the thing. Our idolatry is spiritual adultery. It's playing the prostitute. We're saying to God, thank you that you are the, the God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, and that you love me so much. But you know what? It's not really enough. I also need this other thing over here. I also need comfort. I also need fun. I also need success. I also need approval. I also need influence. I also need applause to be happy. And we know we, it rips us off. These things rip us off when we substitute our idols for God. So what is it for you? What comes to your mind? That's the Holy Spirit bringing it to your mind. Don't push it out. Now here's the thing. I could just say, stop it. Knock it off. Bible says so. Get out. And keep stopping it. A lot of preaching goes that way. So maybe I felt, made you feel uh, guilty and I tried to manipulate you into being good little boys and girls. It's not enough. Guilt is a horrible motivator because we'll just try to ignore the guilt and then we'll just do whatever we want anyway. Or it crushes you. And that's what the evil one wants to do with your guilt. He wants you to be in denial about your life, so you keep destroying yourself, or he wants to crush you. But what the evil one meant for evil, God meant for good. He is a redeemer. You look to the cross and you see the worst thing that ever happened become the, became the best thing that ever happened. It seemed impossible, but the worst thing that ever happened became the best thing that ever happened. And if he could do that with the crucifixion of God the Son, he can do that in your situation. He is a God of redemption. You might not know how it's going to work. He does. He knows how. He's got a plan. And thank God for that. Because we cannot redeem ourselves. Only he can redeem us. 
So you can't save yourself. You cannot keep in God good's graces on your own effort. So lesson number two, my only solution is a deliverer. What do we learn from Gideon about the kind of deliverer we need? This time, let me give you four words, and the first word is gift. The deliverer I need must be a gift of God's grace. It's got to be. Like Israel, we cannot free ourselves from idolatry. Left to ourselves, we will always continue to run to our false idols, believing that they're going to deliver for us, but they don't. They ruin us. We might trade up from from one idol to a a more socially acceptable idol, but we'll continue to be enslaved to us, enslaved to that idol, whatever it is, and, and we'll keep sacrificing for it and keep destroying ourselves and those around us for it. Whether it's socially acceptable idol or not, it still rips you off and destroys you. That means that your only hope is for God to send you a deliverer as a free gift of his grace to set you free. Next word, weakness. The deliverer I need must come to us in weakness. God told Gideon he had too many men to deliver Israel because Israel might say, look what we accomplished. So God subtracted. In the same way, our deliverer must come to us in weakness so that it's clear that what is accomplished is through God's power and not our own. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Next word, atone. The deliverer I need must atone for my sin. And what does atone mean? It means to reconcile, to restore to friendship and harmony, and most of the time at great cost. Sin caused us to be separated from God. And another way of saying that is our idolatry caused us to be separated from God. God told Gideon to offer a bull without defect as a burnt offering to atone for sin. In other words, the sacrifice brings forgiveness and reconciliation to God. The deliverer that you need, that we need, must be a sacrifice to atone for our sins so that our guilt and our shame can be removed. So that we can be made right with God. So that we can be reconciled with our loving Heavenly Father that loves you more than you can ever imagine. Next word, last word in this section, lives. The deliverer I need must live forever. See, you know, here's the problem with the judges, uh, the deliverers and judges. The problem is they all died. And when they died, the, the people started worshiping false gods again. And they suffered the consequences again because the, the, the false gods are useless and destructive. So our only hope is for God to send us a deliverer that lives forever, amen? So, what we need is to realize that if he lives forever, that means that we can live with him forever in the promised land with true peace, 
that is eternal. And you know what? In the fullness of time, God did send the deliverer that lives forever. We were busy chasing our false idols for comfort or fun or significance, whatever it is. But in the midst of all that, God, by his grace, intervenes and he sends us this gift of grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God the son came to us as our deliverer, the deliverer that we were desperate for. And Jesus advanced, and he did battle with our enemies, and he calmed the storm, and he healed the blind, and he cast out demons, and he raised the dead. And when he went to the cross, he there on the cross faced our ultimate enemies of evil and death and eternal judgment. And on the cross, amazingly, he offered himself up as the atoning sacrifice for all of our idolatry. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But on the third day, God raised him in power, and he is alive from the grave. And I'm telling you, that changes absolutely everything for you. He doesn't die and then leave you on your own. He lives, for, he lives forever, and he is with you forever. The writer of Hebrews says, since Jesus lives forever, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for you. That is your God. Now I'll wrap this up with two questions. First question is this. Is Jesus your deliverer? Do you trust him as your deliverer? Is Jesus enough or do you need something else? Whatever that something else is, you're enslaved to it. What is it for you? What is it that comes to your mind? God wants to liberate you from that. He wants you whole. He wants you complete. He wants you to experience life the way that it was meant to be with him being your world, your everything. Jesus becomes your deliverer even through weak faith. You gotta know that. He becomes your deliverer even if your faith is weak because any faith that you have has been given to you from God. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of your faith because he is the one that saves you. He is the one that delivers you. He is the one that transforms you. He's the one that gives you new life. It's not the amount of faith you have, it's the object of your, of your faith. This means that you can rest. You can give up trying to deliver yourself and, and see that your only real hope is Jesus. So trust him. He wants you to. He is reliable. He won't let you down and grind you down like our other idols will. He restores you and brings healing. You can rest in that. And how are you set free from these idols? How do you experience true freedom and true joy? You can't just say no. You have to replace the idols. And how do you do that? You replace those idols with a greater affection by, by seeing the greatest love of Christ. 
You look to him and you see that God loves you so much that he gave you his son. I mean, I can imagine a father giving up the world to save his son, but it's difficult imagining a father that would give, him, give up his son for the world. And that's what God did for you. Jesus pursues you to bring you to the cross so that you would see the love of the Father. And when you do, when you find, when your eyes are open and you finally see the love of the Father, everything else fades in comparison. Nothing even comes close. And when your heart is stirred with, with love for God and loyalty to God, then, then you'll want to live holy lives because you love him and you will want others to experience the love and the truth of, of God. And so you will share the love and truth with God. And you in the midst, right now, here's what I want you to remember, right in the midst of your turmoil or whatever it is that's grinding you down or crushing you or, or, or robbing you of, of just life and joy, I want you to know this, that one day there will come a time that you can look forward to it when you see King Jesus face to face and everything wrong in your life will finally be made completely right. This is what God does. And you can rest in that. You can rest in that right now. You can rest in that forever. And you will see, trusting God through it all, as uncertain as it is, as painful as it is, that it's all worth it. God is powerful. His love is, is powerful. King Jesus is our true hope, our true deliverer, the one who saves us and makes our life whole. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?